It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's great to be with you. Took last weekend off. Sorry. Every now and then. Got to refuel. But now I'm back. Got a lot of good stuff to do today. By the way, we're going to interview John and Margot Katsimatidis at the um, at the top of the hour, at the top of the next hour because of John's great book, How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire. I interviewed him on the, uh, on the Fox Business Show Thursday. He was terrific. We're going to get both of them on, I think. They're taking a little time off going south, but I think they're going to give us some time, which would be great fun. By the way, join us during the week. Fox Business, name of the show is Cudlow. Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. And if you can't uh, dial us in at 4 to 5 p.m., just uh, text your favorite nine-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show. And here you can uh, live stream us on the Internet. That's right, live stream us on the Internet. It's LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. And it'll be all over the country, around the world. Throughout the solar system <clears throat> and the Milky Way. By the way, we have quite a reach, as it turns out. We got a lot of affiliates now. I think uh, we got 150 affiliates or some such thing. So we're we're shooting up. I want to thank everybody that's been listening to us and getting your local radio stations to carry us. We are uh, truly a national show. On Saturdays, how about that? On Saturdays. Talking money and politics. How about that? So let's talk a little money and politics. We had a uh, shocking inflation number yesterday. Actually, we've had a couple of them now. The CPI, which was out uh, a week or two ago, and the uh, Fed's Federal Reserve's favorite, which is something called the Personal Consumption expenditures deflator, PCE deflator, uh, which they use as a guidepost. Anyway, it was up big, six-tenths of 1%. That, by the way, is over 7% at an annual rate. And um, that thing is still now running. I don't know. Inflation rate is really 6%. It's really a 6% inflation rate, 6% wage rate. No matter how you slice the pie, it's a bad number. There's no economic growth. I mean, barely growth. Last year, you had a downward revision in the GDP. So Joe Biden's economic miracle produced less than 1%. Less than 1% in all of 2022 last year. Precise number is 0.9. Donald Trump handed him a 6.5% economy back in the first quarter of 2021. And it had a 1.4%, a 1.4% inflation rate. So Biden's just utter failure, a complete failure. And um, energy up 10%, food up 11%, producer prices up 6%, 
Consumer prices up six and a half percent. And yesterday's uh, PCE. I mean, really, who do these guys think they're kidding? It's a complete failure. It's a complete failure. Five and a half percent up on the uh, PCE deflator. Inside that number, as I say, energy up almost 10 percent, food up over 11 percent. So it's a big problem. The economy is not growing. We are stagnant. Real wages are falling. I mean, wages are going up. The Atlanta Fed wage tracker, it's a very good model, uh, 6% plus wage increases, which is fine, which is great if you're earning it. But the trouble is the inflation rate is higher than the wage rate, so you're losing money. You may have a job. You may have two jobs. But you're still losing money. Take-home pay is going down after inflation. I mean, what good is that? What fun is that? You can crow all you want about jobs, but if the jobs are paying less than the inflation rate, you have a problem. And by the by, that problem, you know, is sort of manifests itself with um, food prices, grocery prices, up 11%. It's not good. None of it's good. Here's a, here's a criticism I have, though. You would think, okay, you would think with Bidenomics utterly failing that the Republicans running for president would take advantage of this. In other words, you have this Biden economic malaise you have this Bidenflation. It all gets worse. The budget is completely out of control. Overspending, overborrowing. The guy's jacking up taxes wherever and whenever he can. He hates business. He hates fossil fuels. That's why energy prices are so high. He's running war against oil and gas, war against business. Spending and borrowing like it's out of sight, out of control, which it is. Inflation remains high. The economy has lost all of its momentum and is now virtually in recession. I mean, 0.9%, less than 1%. So I'm trying to figure out, and this is a key theme in today's show, where are the Republicans? Why aren't they talking about this? Now, I don't mean I don't mean Kevin McCarthy in the Republican House because they are uh, they've been critics and they're working out a, a debt increase spending cut package, although they've got a lot of other things to do. We'll talk about that with Senator Kevin Kramer, uh, U.S. Senator Kevin Kramer at the half hour. But these candidates running for president, including, I hate to say it, my former boss, Donald Trump. And you know, I, love to, I love the guy, by the way. Love the guy. Love, love, love. Um, I'm not endorsing or backing or any of that stuff. I mean, I'm a, I'm a broadcaster, for heaven's sakes. But 
he hasn't talked about the economy much. He certainly hasn't offered up a plan. Neither has Ron DeSantis. Neither has Nikki Haley. Neither has Mike Pence. Neither has Mike Pompeo. Where's the plan for prosperity and growth and higher real wages and ending inflation? Where's the GOP presidential plan? That's how they're going to win. They're not going to win on Ukraine. They're not going to win on gender. They're not going to win on sex. They're not going to win on who's dotier, you know, this Nikki Haley baloney, where you have to be, what, 75 years old or 76 years old, and then you have to take a mental test. That's not going to win. That's not going to win. You know what's going to win? Prosperity, growth, higher wages after inflation. That's going to win. Peace and prosperity always wins. And even, I would go a step further, I mean, again, my former boss, Donald Trump, he issued issued a very good blistering critique of uh, high inflation. Um, I think it was last week. It It was a good piece. But he didn't have a plan. And uh, I was talking to Kellyanne Conway about this last night on the on the Fox Business Show, and you know, if you go back to um, one of Mr. Trump's most brilliant speeches, was his economic plan delivered before the Economics Club of New York, very prestigious uh, forum. He did it in September of 2016. So it was a couple months before the election. And it was principally about the Trump tax cuts, which uh, benefited the middle class, blue-collar working folks. Seventy percent of the benefits went to the middle class. And it was a great speech, terrific speech. It was a pro-growth speech. It was a tax-cutting speech. It was a middle-class-driven speech. And I think that helped tip the scales for him. I need to see that. We all need to see that again. I need to see his new speech. I need to see DeSantis's speech. What is Governor? De- Governor DeSantis done a good job in Florida. Don't get me wrong. Social issues, woke Disney, COVID, I mean, done a fine job. I think he's a pretty popular guy. I think he's a very serious uh, contender. Some people think he's the favorite. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know. I'm not picking winners and losers. I'm just saying I need to hear him on the economy. I need to hear him criticizing Biden for his disastrous high inflation recession. And then I I need to know how you're going to fix it. What is the DeSantis plan for economic prosperity and economic growth? I think uh, former Vice President Mike Pence has it in his head. I think Mike Pence is a, you know, a supply sider. I just haven't heard it coherently out yet. A, B, C, D, you know, that kind of thing. Tell a story. Let people know what you're thinking.
I mean, I think the first candidate who comes out with a comprehensive plan, and I'm going to talk about what a plan might constitute, but I think the first of these Republican presidential candidates, declared or not declared formally, who comes out with a clear plan is going to be a winner. Is going to be a winner and will attract a lot of favorable attention. And then we'll go on to beat Joe Biden, who was wedded to this big government socialism. You know, planning, central planning, redistribution, hates business, wants to destroy the economy, helping Vladimir Putin with high energy prices, all that. I mean, the point is, Bidenomics is a disaster. Bidenflation is a disaster. Biden's budget's a disaster. But what will the GOP do about it? Congress is one thing. The national presidential race is quite another. You have to speak to all the people around the country. they got to develop a plan. So far, I haven't seen it. All right. More on this. Much more on this today. I'm going to take a quick break. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back after this brief message. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So I want to continue this discussion because I want to know what the Republican presidential candidates are going to say. So far, they haven't said a thing about the absolute failure of uh, Bidenomics. It's been a catastrophe. Biden took a perfectly good economy given to him by Donald Trump and uh, turned it into high inflation recession or near recession. I mean, last year, again, 21, you know, 1921, uh, 1921, 2021 was basically still the legacy of the Trump economy. Like I say, it started out at six and a half percent in the first quarter. But 2022 is Biden's first full year. And what did he get? 0.9 real growth, less than 1%. And he took an inflation rate that was one and a half and he ran it up. At one point, it was almost 10%, nine plus. And for the year, six and a half. And it's coming back. It's coming back. That's what all the numbers for January have shown. Federal Reserve is going to have to raise rates even more. We'll talk about this later in the show. With John Carney and some others, I mean, the Fed's target rate's going to 6%. It's now four and three quarters. It's not healthy for the stock market, which had its worst week of the new year. But back to Biden's failure. Bidenomics is an utter failure. But the GOP presidential wannabes are not pouncing on this. They're not. And I don't understand it. They're not speaking to the worries and anxieties, the economic worries and anxieties of the typical family, of working folks, of middle-income people, of blue-collar workers. Now, I thought it was very cool that Donald Trump went to, uh, to Palestine, Ohio, I mean, I thought that was a really good move. I mean, he's taken over the empathy, and Biden won't go. You know, dopey Biden won't go. Buttigieg wouldn't go for three weeks, and he went, and he had a really bad day. 
FEMA didn't go. Nobody's helping these poor people. It's a disaster. So Trump went, and that was wonderful. Don't get me wrong. That was terrific. Absolutely, 100%. That's what makes Donald Trump great. By the way, Trump, as a former real estate construction guy, knows all about uh, these things, all about the risks and the difficulties of rebuilding, you know, and the blow up and the air and all the rest of it. He knows a lot about that stuff. But again, I'm speaking more broadly. The presidential election is not going to be run on, 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 on Palestine, Ohio. It's going to be run about the absence of growth, the absence of prosperity, the absence of happiness. This is not a happy country. Joe Biden has been divisive. And people losing ground. Their standards of living, their living standards are coming down. They're experiencing uh, a big decline in what their dollars will buy. Their purchasing power because of high inflation. And there are shortages still on the shelves. Still can't get these baby diapers. But I'll leave that alone. I'm just saying, in general, in general, the Biden economy is a total failure. The Biden budget and financing is a total failure. But the GOP, the Republican candidates, are not pouncing on it. They are not. And it sort of baffles me and then it frustrates me. And they've got to uh, get on the horse. They've got to come up with plans. And it's not just accounting. It's not just the amount of federal debt. It's what they take home. What kind of job they have that was it pay after inflation? (laughs) The answer is they're losing ground big time. The answer is interest rates keep going up. You're going to see, by the way, I hate to say it, but you're going to see. I mean, we're not, we haven't seen the peak in interest rates. Some people think we have, we have not. We may have seen the peak of inflation, the peak, but inflation is going to be sticky. That's what happens when you make a big mistake on spending too much money and the Federal Reserve printing too much money. It'd take a couple of years for the inflation to get back to 2% or less. So my points are, uh, I hope, very clear. Joe Biden has failed. Utter failure. But I'm looking for presidential candidates who will not only point that out, but will show a plan. Who will the stewards of economic growth and prosperity be? Who's going to promote the tax cuts and the deregulation and the sound dollar and the limited government? That's what I'm waiting to hear. We'll talk about that over the course of the show. Senator Kevin Kramer on the other side of the break. I'm Kudlow. Please stay with us. Talk Radio 77 WABC. 
from Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you. Let's get right to it. Our distinguished guest, Senator Kevin Kramer from North Dakota. A man of many, many views. Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of views, and once in a while, one's right. You know? I don't know. I don't know. I think you're on a roll. I want to ask you about, uh, I opened the show, and I talked about this last night on the TV, and I talked about it this morning on the radio. So you've got a complete breakdown. Bidenomics is a complete disaster. I mean, the numbers are coming in. The inflation rate continues. You had shocking inflation numbers. Last year, his first full year in office, uh, the economy grew by less than 1%. Spending is spiraling, borrowing, debt spiraling, all this stuff. But here's my question, Senator. I'm not hearing any of the Republican presidential candidates talk about this, nor am I hearing them offering a new plan of growth and prosperity. It's, yeah. I don't get it. I mean, this is not we this election will not be about Ukraine, even though Ukraine is not unimportant. Don't get me wrong. It will not be about Ukraine. It will not be about sex. It will not be about gender. It will not be about <laughs> mental capabilities, even though I'm telling you, it'll be about <laughs> growth and prosperity and jobs and uh, real wages. That's what it always is about. And they're not saying anything, sir. You know, what's interesting about what you've just said, and, and that's such an important, I think, lineup of issues that are important but not the issue. And right. it, it always harkens us back to Bill Clinton and James Carville, and it's the economy stupid, right? Yes, yes. Because everybody in America that wakes up thinks about what they can do today. Are they going to be able to – first of all, do they have a job? Do their wages outpace inflation? Can they afford to buy what they need, or do they have to prioritize, which we all should be doing prioritizing, but that includes prioritizing what they need more than something else they need. And and, and this is what people think about because it gets to their security. It gets to economic security. It gets to their personal security. It gets to even personal safety. But right now, I think what you're experiencing and your frustration stems from what is often the case when you're the party out of power. So you're looking at this guy in the White House right now, and you see a hundred things he's doing wrong, and it's easy to be against them and try to exploit them. And a common enemy is the easiest way, politically or any other way, to, to rally you know people to some form of unity. But what's missing is the vision, Larry, and that's what you're speaking to. And I believe that the presidential candidate that steps up and presents not just the things that are going wrong, because there there are plenty of them, but that's sort of the easy thing. But the vision and how do we get there? I I was, you know, I've been doing a little bit of research because we've gone so off the rails in the last couple of years. You know, we have this. A few of us have this balanced budget amendment bill that that Cindy Hyde Smith came up with, and 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 a handful of us have joined her on, and it, it caps. Spending at 18% of GDP. So here we are. You're talking about government spending at the beginning of of the the menu, and again, then the more important thing is the policies that are pro growth, you know, pro business, pro employer and employee that lift up the laborer as well as, as the as the the manager. And, and and growing our economy while at the same time reducing our spending. Well, this this bill, this amendment that we're proposing, caps spending at 18% GDP. Donald Trump, when you were when you were in the White House working with him on these things, presented a budget that was 16%. Mm-hmm. So so we're talking about balance of budget amendment that caps at you know 
18%. It's not like we're being stingy. We're just trying to institutionalize some discipline that prevents um, you know, the, the, the passions of, of people to just spend on their, their highest priority. We need guardrails, Larry, and I, I think a balanced budget amendment could you, be the guardrails that help us. You know what the uh, CBO baseline spending uh, rate is now? I'm frightened to think about Over it. Over 24% of GDP. Yeah. Over. Right. Yeah. The 50-year average is slightly less than 20. Biden has moved that thing over 24. And I'm not um, – they're excluding the temporary COVID emergencies. Right, uh, right. This is the basics. I mean, it's in their uh, – it's in uh, their baseline that they put out last week. It's over 24 percent of GDP. All right. I mean, that's incredible. Now it that's incredible. And here's now here's another point. Okay, uh, we can talk about a constitutional amendment to balance the budget. We can talk about spending caps, which is very important. Right. But, very important. Uh, you know, and sequestration to enforce those caps. All that stuff. Mm. Very important. But here, here's the thing. You know what's not a budget policy. Mm. Just saying we, we will never yep. look at Social Security and Medicare. Yeah. Now, this I'm not saying Social Security and Medicare this cycle with the debt uh, ceiling. Right. No. Right. Right. I'm saying, but but take a look at the numbers. In 10 years, you've got a major problem. Actually, Medicare less than 10 years. So, right. so come up with a commission, a bipartisan commission. I did that 40 years ago with Reagan. Mm-hmm. But I'm mm-hmm. just saying this is one of these things where – just saying, don't you screaming? I won't cut Social Security and Medicare. That is not a policy. That is not a policy. What it is is it's caving to a, a radical left political machine that has used this argument against Republicans every time it gets uncomfortable for Democrats, right. every time their fiscal and economic situations. And by the way, it's just as big a lie when we fall for it. So this is why Mitt Romney, you know, there are lots of things that that, you know, conservatives don't like about Mitt Romney, but he's the person that has put up a plan mm. called the Trust Act. And I, I hope he's going to introduce it again this year. I, I was a co-sponsor before mm. that, that takes the entitlement side of the, the mandatory side of the budget, which, as you know, Larry, has grown to now being about 80 percent of the whole budget. That's 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 a cop up from Congress, mm. you know, to, to, to do that and say, well, we'd like to do more. But, you know, the, the mandatory budget's 80 percent and half of the discretionary is defense. It's the most legitimate thing we do. Okay, fine, but but it's a lie to tell people that we're not going to take care of or deal with Social Security and Medicare, especially because if we don't do something, we are doing something. We're allowing them to go insolvent and kicking in automatic cuts of benefit cuts of 20, 18, 20, 25 percent, and and dealing with the issue now will be much less dramatic than dealing with the issue when you hit the cliff, because that's what Democrats are headed for is a cliff when insolvency kicks in, and and that is blatantly irresponsible. And I'm not talking about cuts. Let's put it all on the table, Larry. Let's talk about, you know, the, the, the age limits, the, 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 the salary cap. So if you and I, a couple of conservatives are talking to our conservative friends and we say, you know, maybe the indexing isn't quite right. Maybe we could raise the, 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 the revenue picture a little bit by by lifting the cap or, or just raising the cap a little bit on the on the income that's that's taxed for Social Security. Right away, we're called tax raisers. If you go to the Democrats and say, what if we raise the age by one month a year for, yeah. for 10 years, um, starting in five years? That's so my favorite all, one. All years, right? Isn't it, though? That's now, my the, favorite one. The left comes and says, well, now you're cutting benefits. Well, okay, but 
but we're delaying benefits by a month for some people that are currently in their 50s. You know, we've, we've got to we've got to put America first. We've got to put our future first. We've got to put our children and grandchildren, uh, you know, first, and not impact. We can do this without impacting current recipients of these benefits. But we aren't willing to have the honest discussion, unedited, on on national television and on New York City radio. Um, too many Republicans. I mean, our, you know, your boss. Won't touch. Doesn't want to talk about Social Security. Our, our, our former favorite president. I know. You know our favorite former president. The president before him had a commission. Remember Simpson mm-hmm. Bowles? Mm-hmm. It was he put put it on a shelf. Um, George W. Bush, after giving his his uh, State of the Union address after his first reelection, the first year of his reelection, came to Fargo, North Dakota, with a plan for Social Security, talking about reinvesting parts of it into different, you know tools, different private you know, markets or something. And of course, he got his head beaten in so badly it was the last time he ever talked about it. Nobody wants to deal with it. And I'm telling you, the president that's going to have to deal with it will be the person in the White House when we hit the cliff and go go off of it. And and, uh, and then, then what are they going to they're going to do? They're going to try to borrow more money, Larry. They're going to borrow yet more money. Of course they are. That's the modern way. Worse. That's the American way. <laughs> By the way, unbelievable. We're in 150 stations around the country. Did you know? Oh, that? I love it. You're I, I, well. I'm not surprised. As we, big a star as you, I'm surprised there aren't 1,500. We had to build it up. Uh, <laughs> took a couple of years, but anyway, uh, yeah. No, we'll wind up borrowing more money. I'm just saying. The other point that really um, I want to get to is this growth and prosperity. For example, right there you go. Th- there's two things. Uh, number one. We need to aim at 4% growth or 35 to 4% growth. Sure. If you take those CBO baseline numbers and you superimpose mm-hmm. a 3.5% growth rate, everything looks better. Everything Great. looks much no better. Second point is we need to get the Trump tax cuts permanent. There and, we need to re- and we need to reopen the oil and gas bigots. Now, th- these should be easy Republican things, but Senator... Kramer, they're not talking. Nikki Haley throws her hat into the ring, and the first thing she wants to do is impose some kind of mental test. I go, huh? I'm scratching my head. Really, Nikki? Really? I know know her very well. That's not going to win. That's just a cheap shot. All that, you know what I mean? That's just cheap shot stuff at Biden, maybe at Trump. And the the best example I know is my dear friend Arthur Laffer, who is 82 years old, who has more energy and brain power than all of them put together. And he's 82. Give give me Art Laffer at 102 any day over a 40-year-old genius. Let Let me take a quick break. Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota uh, facile on all these subjects, why we love them. I'm Cudlow. We're just going to take a quick mini break, and we'll be right back. This is The Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Cudlow. This is The Larry Cudlow Show, and we are here with the great Senator Kevin Kramer from the great state of North Dakota. You know, Senator Kramer, just to extend this a uh, little bit more, I'm, I'm just mm-hmm. thinking that uh, look, the race hasn't, the presidential race hasn't really shaped up yet. Trump is in, yes. Right. Um, Haley's in, DeSantis undoubtedly is going to get in. But I think the person that comes up with a strong Bidenomics critique and a mm-hmm. prosperity growth plan, a plan, 
I mean, that doesn't have to be just, you know, start talking about permanent tax cuts. Start talking about, you know, reopening the fossil fuel spigots and regulations and business. In other words, talk turkey. Talk about take-home pay after inflation. That person, it may be Trump. It may be DeSantis. It may be something, someone that we're not even thinking about. We've both seen this before. I mean, that's what's on people's minds. People have had a rough year, Senator. They've had a rough year, and they're not happy about it. No, and and this is the disconnect that that's that's so far you know not being taken advantage of. If, if I might use rough language, you you can take advantage of that vacuum, and and do something good for the country and elevate yourself as the candidate mm-hmm. by speaking to the things that people are thinking about every day when they wake up and when they have breakfast with their families or when they look into their future. And 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 it comes down to their personal economics. And again, I'm going to go back to a democratic. Um, a, a Democratic mm-hmm. presidential example, and that was Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton's chances of becoming the Democratic nominee were almost zero at mm-hmm. the beginning, mm-hmm. much less to topple George Herbert Walker Bush, who earlier in that election year had a 90% approval rating. Mm-hmm. But what did he do? He spoke specifically to, the, to these issues. Now, he spoke from a liberal perspective, but at least he spoke to them. And, and again, it gets back to James Carville's, it's, it's the economy stupid. And I don't know why we have to be retaught that lesson. Plus, it's, it, it's, the, it's, the, um, it's the wheelhouse of republicanism, if we really are honest right. about it. And, and this is what's happened in the modern Republican Party is this. Don't get me wrong. Again, I'm with you on all the social issues. They're not insignificant. I, I'm 100% pro-life. Mm. I want, I'm all those things. But you have to speak to the heart, particularly of the people in the swing states that, that are looking for that leader that steps up and, and you know, recognizes them, much like Donald Trump did, you know, six years ago. What uh, Kellyanne Conway and I were talking about this on the TV show last night, and we went back to Trump gave – this was an important speech. Actually, he gave a series of – the Detroit Economics Club in August of 2016, and then the bigger one was the New York Economics Club in September 2016. This is a speech we all worked wow. very hard on. Yeah. I sat next to him and gave the speech. Anyway, that was a major turning point. Uh, that He laid out the tax cuts, and he laid out the fact that the middle class would be the biggest beneficiary of the tax cuts. And then he talked about deregulation and then he talked about a strong currency and so forth. That was a it was pro growth, pro prosperity, pro worker, hugely important. Now somebody needs to update that. That's what they need to do. They need to refit it and update it. I don't know that it's going to change that much, but I just know that they have to talk about it. I mean, right now, right now we should be talking about tax cuts, tax cuts. Grow the economy three and a half to four, not less than one. Well, to your point earlier, in fact, I would submit to you that one of the reasons, one of the reasons we've gotten by with these extraordinary deficits lately is because a big economy sort of disguises the problem. The the problem is it it only disguises it for a while before before it becomes, you know, before it collapses. And so you're exactly right. If somebody steps up and and gives that speech again with some updates, Mm -hmm. but remember, because of that speech and because Donald Trump had a Republican majority in the House 
the Senate. And and while some of these personalities, as we look back on them, some people don't like so much. But you had a genius, you know, a, a wonk in, in as Speaker of the House and Paul Ryan, who actually understood tax policy and pro growth policies. And you, you, you had a, a you know amenable Senate. It wasn't easy, as you recall. I mean, we had, it was hard to get that very last vote on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. But we simplified the tax code. We we stopped double taxing, you know, stranded in, uh, revenue that that was in other countries of American companies and repatriated that revenue. You talk about onshoring. That's the big topic today. Can we onshore more? Well, sure we can. But we, and we ought to, especially um, some of our critical supply chains. But you can't tax them out of existence either. And part of the reasons companies go to other places is because of tax policy and regulatory right. policy. That's so, it. I want to I have a plan. I have an onshoring plan. It's called slash taxes and regulations. There you go. And, and I have a second and, and my backup plan is make energy cheaper. Well that that relates <laughs> How about to the that? first plan. Oh yeah, that's right. It does, doesn't it? Yes. That's yeah, right. That's 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 right. But they're not saying that. See that's the not thing, saying Senator. That. They got to say that. that. They got to come out. You know what? It's so obvious, but it's not. They people have to it's hear not. them say it. Yep, yep. Because otherwise, they're just being frightened by the news of the day, and that's right. also political strategy, unfortunately. But it also demonstrates an, uh, a disrespect and a lack of confidence in the American people's ability to understand what you're talking about, and and that is a gross mistake that too many politicians make. I mean, I'd even submit to you, I'd go back to Donald Trump's immigration policies, which Republicans rejected and Democrats rejected, because he had a comprehensive inter, uh, immigration plan that had a, a skills-based immigration policy that you didn't have to increase the number of legal immigrants into the United States, which stopped the illegal immigrants, first of all, but then have a skills-based immigration policy so that just yesterday I'm here in Bismarck, as at the North Dakota Petroleum Council with Ron Ness and and legislative leaders and and folks talking about the fact that we have 40,000 job openings in North Dakota and nobody to do them, and no skilled labor to do them, and yet we're bringing in a couple million people illegally each year, and we have a million people legally, most of whom, the vast majority of whom, have uh, you know aren't aren't required to have a skill set or an education or anything that meets the demands of our economy. We've got to have an honest discussion about how we fill those workforce needs because. You know what? If we onshore a lot more, Larry, and we ought to be, we're going to need people to do those jobs as well. Of course, we have to stop paying them to not work. That would be helpful. Well, yeah, yeah, but I'm look. I was proud of that plan we had. I worked on that. I, I thought it was great. Miller, Jared, a whole bunch of us. Yeah. Uh, yep. uh, uh, Brookie Rollins. I mean, none. That was a good plan. We couldn't get it off the ground because Democrats wouldn't let us. But right. uh, we we penciled in. I remember. Uh, we cut a deal with the with Steve Miller. Uh, I think it was one point <laughs> one one point one million legals per year, yep. which was right. uh, I think we arrived at that because that was the long term trend. The long, sure. the long, long term trend was about a million or a million one. We all agreed that, that was fine. We could absorb that, sure. and as you say, yep. uh, the demands for that, if you're going to onshore, probably go up. It's the illegals that were the problem. And the That's Democrats, right. uh, you know, they wouldn't play. What can I tell you? No, I, you're exactly right. And but just think of our just think of our asylum policies, Larry. Here we have a couple million people coming across the southern border claiming asylum, making a case for it. And the one, first thing we do is make sure we, we, we give them everything they need: health care, food, a ride to their favorite destination or resort in the United States. Now, and and, and we give them everything except a job. 
They're not allowed to work. I mean, oh, right. it's the craziest policy in the world. And yet we're guilty as much as anybody. I say we. Conservatives oftentimes we look and say, I will not tolerate that. And liberals look and say, well, I'm not going to tolerate that. And yet to get what America needs, we might have to each give a little bit. But 1.1 million immigrants, legal immigrants a year with a higher percentage of them, maybe 60, 70 percent, which is what Europe and Canada do, mm -hmm. that required to have a skill set that is in demand in our economy. We could rock and roll to a level that um, we could balance our budget, have less need for government. The only thing government would need to do then is secure our borders, uh, you know, keep up, keep the free world safe, mm -hmm. and probably build some infrastructure to to meet the demands of all the goods and services we're going to produce. That now, now I, I, well, let's do that. I'm I'm for it. i you know I almost forgot to ask. I, I've given up hope. Yeah. Um, I remember <laughs> Never give up. we used to have uh, we used to have a discussion about the permitting bill. <laughs> the Joe Manchin. Yeah. Per yeah. What, in the last uh, 45 seconds, yeah. Senator, is there anything yeah. in the Senate going on there with the permitting bill? Sure. So here's what's going on in the Senate on the permitting bill, and I talked to Joe about this a lot, mm. and that is we're waiting for the House. So Joe has, Joe Manchin and, and I have both uh, talked to House leadership, mm -hmm. Kathy McMorris-Rogers, who mm -hmm. chairs the Energy and Commerce Committee, and others. Come up with a plan that you guys can pass, mm -hmm. get it over to the Senate, and then we'll put our fingerprints on it and see if we can't work with wow. that to find something that both sides will vote on. All right. Kathy McMorris-Rogers, good, good lady. All right, Senator She's Kevin Kramer, thank you ever so much for your time on the weekend. We really appreciate it. Folks, we're going to take a quick oh, break. Must. And then uh, John and Margot Katsimatidis. John has a new book out, and it's going to be a bestseller. I'm Larry Kudlow. All right. We're trying to find John Katsimatidis and Margo Katsimatidis to talk about his book. The book, by the way, I'm going to promo the book. On Amazon, number one. Number one for hot new releases for business and companies. And the name of the book is How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire. John Katsimatidis. And I think we are trying to... Margot Katzmatis. All right, well, we'll see if we can find them. We'll keep uh, – somebody should uh, email them or something. All right, it's calling in 1113. Okay, so uh, I want to continue my little thoughts about our conversation with Senator Kevin Kramer and my opening uh, riff because uh, this business about GOP candidates – not uh, coming up with a plan for the economy to deal with Bidenomics, which is an utter failure. You know, this is a serious, serious business. And I want to go back to the midterm elections because a lot of polls, most polls, expected a kind of Republican landslide in the midterm elections last November. Um, the cavalry is coming. I said it a million times. The cavalry is coming. And um, we didn't get a cavalry. Now, we did get a platoon. We did take the House, GOP. But it was disappointing. And um, we didn't pick up any Senate seats. In fact, we lost a Senate seat. So I recall everybody was talking about the high inflation. And everybody was talking about the... Uh, border problem, 
millions of people streaming illegally over the border. Um, crime was a big issue. You know, all these Democratic prosecutors in these blue cities, all the George Soros-funded, uh, far left, no bail, no jail here in New York. So those were some of the key issues. Inflation, spending, overspending, which was one of the root causes of the inflation, and the border, and crime, and Afghanistan, the mishandling of Afghanistan. But what was lacking was a solution. You know, what John would say, I think John Katsimatidis would say, a common sense solution. I mean, and the other interesting thing, you had go back and think about democratic economists uh, who had worked for Barack Obama, namely uh, Larry Summers from Harvard and uh, Jason Furman, uh, who's also teaching at Harvard. Uh, and some others. You know, they were among Joe Biden's biggest critics when he took an economy that was already overheating and spent $1.9 trillion way back in March of 2021, jammed it through. So they were critics, critics, and Biden wouldn't listen to them. Biden administration is more like Bernie Sanders, Socialist, big government, crazed about climate, crazed about you know, their obsessions with uh, oil and gas. Now, uh, I won't say every Republican, but I'd say it was very difficult for the GOP to craft an alternative vision for the economy. In other words... Elect Republicans, and here's what we will do. And they didn't talk much in those terms. The criticism was there, but the solution wasn't. The vision wasn't. And they needed an economic growth and prosperity vision. And I know it's hard when you're running. I mean, you have... You know, 435 races in the House, and you had uh, whatever you had, 25 or 30 races in the Senate. It's not easy. A sitting president commands the media, and of course the corporate media, the mainstream media is all left-wing anyway. Uh, Not all of them, not Fox and Newsmax and others, but... You know, the big cables, MSNBC, CNN, NBC, CBS, ABC, et cetera, et cetera. But it's hard because Biden speaks in one voice and the GOP speaks with many voices. Now, as we enter in the presidential cycle, and, you know, it's February 2023. The election's in November 24. But really, the first debate is in, you know, was just announced in Milwaukee uh, in August. That'll be the first debate. Now you'll have a handful of people running for president on the GOP side. Now, I don't, I'm going to leave out Biden. We'll see if, if anybody's going to challenge Biden. But you're going to have, uh, you know, four, five, six, who knows, seven people, I don't know, maybe more, on the Republican side. 
but it will be easier for them to craft a message. They could say, well, here, Donald Trump is going to run on this. Ron DeSantis is going to run on that. Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence. Not 435, you know, plus Senate. Just a handful. And they will have an opportunity to put their views out, and the public will hear them. First, the GOP public, because it'll be in the primaries, and then ultimately you're going to have the national public. And they've got to do it, and I think they've got to start now. I think that's a key point. They must start now. And they're not doing it. I mean, yes, yesterday, take yesterday. You get a shockingly high inflation number. And before that, uh, the week before that, you had a, two other shockingly high inflation numbers. And yet, nobody put out an alternative vision of the leading names. Now, I do recall that Donald Trump put out through his political action committee. I mean, I get that stuff. And um, he ripped into it on how bad the inflation was. He ripped into it. Okay, he got that. But unfortunately, again, I love Trump. I worked for him for three years. I make no bones about it. I'm not endorsing here. I'm just, I'm not in a position to endorse. But I'm just saying he, he didn't give a plan. He ripped it. Uh, The others, I don't recall the others saying a word about the lousy inflation numbers that came out or the fact that interest rates were going to have to go higher or the fact that GDP last year barely grew at all in in, uh, Joe Biden's first year. Nobody talked about it. And I think that's inexcusable. And I fear that that mistake will be repeated. Or, you know, the other thing is, and this is equally important, these budget numbers have come out, the Congressional Budget Office come out, and, I mean, they're, they're very bad numbers. We were talking to Senator Kevin Kramer about you know, spending as a share of GDP over 24%. The 50-year average is slightly less than 20%. What are we, what are we doing at 24%? All right. Hang on a second. I believe we have found the maestro himself. John Katsimatidis is on. And maybe... Larry- I'm on the beach. <laughs> That's what I figured. <laughs> I, I'm on Fort Lauderdale Beach, and, and it's it's beautiful. I go back to the uh, '80s when uh, what was the what was that famous song? Uh, Where the girls are. <laughs> um, are you alone, or is there a Margot there too? Margot is here, and uh, we're attending uh, the breakfast we usually have in. Uh, Southampton, we're having the Fort Lauderdale version of it right now, and the sun is shining. It's a beautiful day in Fort Lauderdale, and we're on Lauderdale by the sea, and uh, a great restaurant right on the ocean, and and uh, 
Look, there's something to say about coming on down to Florida. <laughs> well, I was there last weekend, so I understand full well. I want you to know, we looked it up. Uh, on the Amazon hot new releases for business, you are number one. Your book is number one. I'm going to say it again. How far do you want to go? Lessons from a common sense billionaire, John Katsimatidis. You're number one. Uh, on the Amazon hot new releases for business. So that's pretty cool. I think it must have been because you had a great TV interview on Fox Business on Thursday. That well, mu- uh, everybody's talking about it. Uh, uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I got a better seat at the breakfast. We have about 50 people here that we usually have in Southampton. And uh, the name of the place is the Anglins Beach Club, uh, right on the, on the ocean. You can't ask uh, for a better uh, place. And the CFO uh, elected in uh, Florida, uh, Jimmy Petronas, is here as our main speaker today. And uh, uh, Florida has doesn't owe any money. They have excess on their budget. <laughs> yes, very good. Uh, is Margo there? Margo is here, but she's sitting uh, near the front of the restaurant. Oh. I moved to the back. All right, so we're going to talk about this. So, John... Um, you made your fortune, your your first fortune in supermarkets. Uh, you're still, I mean, you write in the book, they don't they don't give you much to the bottom line, but you still feel you have to be attached to the supermarkets. Hold it's, on, Margo, Margo, say hello. Hi, Larry. Hey, Margo. So I, w- I was going to lead with you. I'm glad you came on. Now, here's the thing. One of the best parts of the book... And this is pretty good truth telling by John. Is so John hires you, right? And we're in the supermarket phase, right? And you walk into him and tell him how disorganized he is and, and how it's gotta all be changed. Now I assume that's that true. I assume that's a true story, right? Yes, absolutely true. And I want you to tell us about this. And it's still, and it's still true, by the way. <laughs> no, but you're, you're organized, disorganized, organized. It's all good. I have organizers that organize now. Yes, well, I know. So, Margot, how did you put it to him when you told him he wasn't organized? How did you diplomatically put it to him? I, you know, me, Larry, I just tell the truth, and he was very disorganized. He had... He was the first one to create uh, accounts payable and receivable on computers that he so programmed. And there were computer papers stacked everywhere. Our office was only about seven foot wide by ten foot long. No, a little bit bigger, a little bit. Not that much, honey. Trust me. Anyway, <laughs> yes. so yeah, I ended up, you know, getting binders and things and organized them and dated them and all that. But and so it goes on from there. Did he cooperate when you were doing your reorganization plan? Was he was relieved. He could see the floor. <laughs> he could see the floor. Okay. And I want to just say that um, I'm completely biased. Margot and John Katsimatidis are among my dearest friends, and uh, I, have, I have no objectivity whatsoever. But, Margot, you've been a part of John's business story the whole time, including and most particularly – WABC Radio. Is that fair? That's fair to say, and I absolutely love it. I love working with the people and all of our talent and everyone. Uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful group. And it's given John uh, new energy. Is that also fair? 
that's absolutely fair. You know, the guy's he a pre- loves it too. The guy's a pretty good broadcaster, it turns out. He's with some practice. Yeah, you know, he's getting pretty good there, I must say. <laughs> Did you hear, I don't know if you heard this, Margo, but uh, on the Amazon list, uh, the book is is the uh, number one hot new releases for business, number one in business. Well, she hears it now, and uh, uh, by the way, we're number one for uh, for business in hardcovers. Uh, we're number two for uh, for uh, Audibles. audio, and number three for Kindle. Yes, absolutely. So, so three out of five. Somewhere's in there. You're going to sell a book when they actually start selling. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> okay, um, John, talk to us about energy. All right, uh, you're you know. Your energy story is, I guess it's the most profitable part of your empire right now. Uh, We had some lousy inflation news uh, yesterday. We had some lousy inflation news last week. What do you see for the energy story? What do you see for the oil story, John? Well, oil is down to $75, and uh, uh, we're looking, the next break is 72, 72 and a half. If it breaks to 72, 72 and a half next week, then the next uh, target is $70. On the other side uh, of the coin, uh, Russia uh, and uh, OPEC nations, they, they want $100 oil because that's what they run their economy on. Mm-hmm. So there's a struggle. There's a struggle in the world for whom do the bells toll. The American people that can have $65, $70 barrel uh, oil where inflation goes away in the next three months, four months, five months, uh, as things taper off, or uh, the uh, Saudi Arabians and Russia that want to run their economy on $100 oil. And that's going to be the challenge over the next uh, uh, few uh, months. And what about interest rates, John? There's a lot of talk now that rates are going to have to go much higher. Well, I know. Even Jamie Dimon went on and said uh, rates have to go much higher. Well, I think uh, Jamie, you know, I admire Jamie, uh, uh, and uh, uh, his father was a very dear friend of mine. And uh, but, but I think he's wrong on this one. Mm-hmm. I think what what the Fed did during COVID, they said let's let's slow up the the, the throttle, and let's see what happens after we get over COVID. I think we're in a similar situation, Larry, where I'm saying let's slow up the increases. So we don't destroy the entire real estate industry in, a, in, in North America, which is 20 percent of, of the economy, and see what happens if we can maintain $70 oil, then the, the uh, inflation goes away by itself. Mm-hmm. But, but if the Saudi Arabians, if the OPEC, if Russia uh, try to get $100 oil, then guess what? The American people lose because... What happens in Washington, they're making uh, the uh, poor people poorer, and they're making the middle class poorer. And a trillion dollars of our economy has moved over from North America all the way to to Russia and Saudi Arabia. Hmm. And and Russia is based their economy based on on $100 oil. Yep. So we should be printing 14 or 15 million barrels a day. That's where we should be, not 12 but 14 or 15 million barrels a day. What's the outlook? Can we get a change? I mean, these Republicans should wake up. Well, I think uh, President Biden has to uh, make a decision. America first, not last. 
and if we can print 15 million barrels a day, which is doable, and Canada prints another five, five and a half million barrels a day, North America will be self self independent, and we'll have the greatest economy again. You know, we were talking earlier, John. Uh, by the way, let me give another plug. The name of the book is How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire by John Katsimatidis, who was a very, very dear friend and, of course, also is the purveyor of this uh, radio station, WABC, here in New York. And this broadcast, by the way, is all over the country. We've got a million affiliates now, 150 affiliates. So what's up? Stay with this. No, stay with this. I want to stay with this. Just stay with this. Uh, John, um, let me talk to you about this. When Bill Clinton ran for president way back, he said it was the economy stupid. And one of my concerns right now is that the Biden economy is doing very poorly. And the Republicans have got to show that they have a plan for better economic growth and lower inflation. They have to adopt the Clinton mantra of an economy stupid. They need to show us a common sense approach to a healthy, prosperous economy. That's what's missing from the discussion right now. What you think? Agreed 110 percent that it's all about the oil, Larry. It's not about anything else. Mm -hmm. If oil prices went down to... 65 or $70 where we started. We started at 55 actually. But if they go back to 65 inflation goes away, and our economy goes back to, to, to the greatest economy in the world. So they should push for a permitting bill. Absolutely. And, and enough, enough with the restrictions on the EPA and, and all the restrictions they're trying to put on. And look, it's all about America. Uh, China doesn't give a damn about uh, environmental. Mm. They don't give a damn. Mm. And they're, they're, they're going right by us in the economy at warp speed. It's about getting the, the right thing for the American people. Let's not make the poor Americans, let's not make the middle-class Americans poorer. Yeah, China is buying the Russian oil. Yes, and, and China is getting a 30% discount. Uh, so they're only paying $50. Yeah. And India is buying the Russian oil. I thought India was a friend of ours. Maybe not, huh? Uh, well, listen, it's all in the Watch the checkbook where it is. Uh, India is probably getting a 35% discount knowing how good of negotiators they are. So, John, you're down in Florida. You're down in Lauderdale right now. You already have a good governor, Ron DeSantis. Um, you ready to make another run for uh, governor of New York? Well, let's see what happens. I think the next race up is uh, 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 Senator Gildebrand. And she has, look, she's a nice lady, but she hasn't accomplished much for our country, for our state. So you're going to take a look at that? You never know, Larry. <laughs> All right. I'm going to let you go. Have a fabulous weekend. Hugs to Margo. And the name of the book is How Far Do You Want to Go? Lessons from a Common Sense Billionaire by the great John Katsimatidis. Thank you, John. Sorry to bother Thank your you, vacation. Larry. All right. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow here. I'm still in New York where it's very, very cold outside. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with something somehow, somewhere. Stay with us, please. <laughs> Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. 
All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show, and we bring in my great pal, John Carney, Breitbart News Editor for Economics and Finance and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. Hello, John. Hi, Larry. So, so inflation is not dead, and interest rates, at least the Fed's target rate, has not peaked. And we were talking about 6% Fed funds rate on the TV show yet. Was it yesterday? It must have been yesterday. Yesterday, maybe it was Thursday. Yes, yesterday. It was yesterday. Time flies when you're having fun. And um, what do you make of this story? I think, you know, the stock market had a very bad week, including yesterday. And I, I mean, I think a lot of these Wall Street guys and gals kind of talk themselves in to the end of inflation and the end of the Fed rate hikes and rate cuts. And I don't, I've never seen such a such a miscue, misdirection, miss everything from Wall Street. I mean, maybe I have, maybe it's been out there before, but um, this story is going to be a lot tougher than people think. It was really extraordinary over the last month. We got one pretty good month of data in December. November wasn't so bad. December seemed really good. And basically, Wall Street convinced itself, that's it. Inflation's over. We're on the glide path out of here. We're going to be done. Uh, That was foolish for a number of reasons. One, just you can never decide that a new trend has begun with just one month of data. Number two, we now have revised that data. So it wasn't anywhere near as good as everybody thought it was back in December. We now see, actually, inflation was running much hotter in December, and it has accelerated to a very serious degree, and not just like a few items here or there, but all across the board, services, goods, everybody talked about goods inflation going away, but it hasn't gone away. And so we are seeing a reacceleration in January. I don't want to make the same mistake and say, you know, that's it, you know, inflation's heading back up to 9%. I don't think that's right. But I do think that the fight to bring down inflation is going to be a lot harder and Wall Street was giving it credit for, and this kind of soft landing that led to the huge rally that we saw in January, I, I think is uh, going to be looked at as a major mistake by all the analysts. You know, um, talking about some of these underneath the hood numbers, energy up 9.6%, food up 11.1%. You're right about goods. Goods up 4.7%, uh, services up 57 and then the PPI was 6%. The CPI was 6.4. The Atlanta Fed wage tracker is uh, 6.1. And your favorite measure, which you turned me on to, the Cleveland median, is uh, 7 or 7.1? Well, so the Cleveland median is, is not 7.1. The thing that's 7.1 is if you annualize the January number, it would give oh, us 7.1% inflation. And that... That's important because what it, it gives you a picture of if inflation keeps going at the rate it was in January, it's 7.1. Now, look, that's – again, you don't want to extrapolate too much from one month. If you take a three-month average of PCE inflation, it's 4.7, which is still really high. Mm. Uh, let's call underlying inflation somewhere between those, so like 5 or 6 percent is probably the right number which is where the median uh, CPI is. No, no, the median CPI is 7.1, John. Oh, well. See, I'm, I'm looking I, I right mean, at it. I'm you're looking, right. No, you're, you're right. And that's so, – so look, 
this is uh, a that is a lot of inflation. The and we're and again we're not going to get through that. Remember, the Fed wants to get down to ten, to two percent. A lot of people thought that we were going to be even close to that by the end of this year. I think if you look at all these numbers from January, it's really hard to imagine that we get anywhere in the neighborhood of two percent by so, the end of this year, which means the Fed can't cut, right? Like the, this no. idea that, oh, the Fed will start cutting. They can't cut if we're at 4%. Well, your point, no way. your point last night on the show was you got to have a positive real Fed funds rate, and we're not near there. I mean, That's we're, right. we're I, nowhere I don't care near, what measure you use, we're not near there. So the Fed, th- the target's got to have to go up, John, quite a bit. I, I think the Fed, yes, I think people are rethinking this now. They've already built in another 25 basis points. So people had it ending at like five to five, two, five. Now they're saying five and a half, maybe. Yeah. I think, you know, in a month's time, I think you and I will be talking about how Wall Street has moved its you know, expectations up to 6%. And it may have to go higher than that. Because again, you do need a positive rate, I think, to uh, bring down inflation. And as long as the interest rate is still a real negative rate, then I I just don't see how we get there. John, let's switch gears. You wrote up this piece, kind of interesting. 50-year-old confidential Fed memo reveals a secret debt ceiling escape hatch. Now, you got to understand, John, 50 years ago, I was at the New York Fed. <laughs> <laughs> I was in open. I was a junior research guy in the open market operations department. So, as I understood it, I was uh, reading this thing. There's the out here is what if the Fed refrains from tendering for redemption its holdings of Treasury bills as they mature, that would open up uh, or leave the Treasury with some cash. In other words, um, they don't – no, I'm not sure I understand this because the t- the Treasury bills are going to mature. So you're saying the Fed shouldn't buy them back or the Fed shouldn't let them mature? I'm not sure I understand yeah, well, well, so, this. Yeah, so here's – so the background here, right, is Paul Volcker, who was then Undersecretary of Treasury, right, uh, calls up uh, the Fed and says, hey – Look, we're going to need some extra cash um, to pay the bills because the debt because the debt ceiling had been had expired. Basically, they had, they had raised the debt ceiling, but only on a temporary basis. It was expiring, so they were going to find themselves, you know, needing to both pay off the things that mature the bills that matured, and also you know make the normal government expenditures. And they were worried they would run out of money because they couldn't borrow anymore. So you know, standard debt ceiling dilemma. And what they figured out is if they didn't have to make payments to the Federal Reserve mm. because the bills that were maturing weren't tendered, uh, then you could then you could not make the payments that would leave you extra cash to pay the other uh, expenditures as they came due. And so basically what the Fed would be doing is sitting on matured treasuries but not bringing them in for redemption. Is that, uh, no. is that, is that, what if, if I own a three-month treasury bill and I wanted my money back, they wouldn't give it to me? Well, so, yes. They, so that is what they are saying is they're saying basically 
the Fed agreed. And, the, and what, what, what amazed me was that the Fed actually did agree. They said, <laughs> yeah, we could do this. Right. And that the, that the Fed general counsel told the Fed chairman, you can do it on your own authority. There's nobody else who, you know, you don't need, you don't even need the FOMC. You should probably tell them you're doing this, but you can do it on your own. And this was the backup plan in 1973, 1974. Remember, this was, they, it was expiring, but this was the backup plan in 1973, December, for how they were going to be able to keep spending. It never actually became operational because Congress actually passed a clean debt ceiling raise. Mm. And so they didn't actually end up having to do this. But what's interesting to me, one, is that this memo was secret mm. until 2020. Mm. Uh, nobody knew that. So the last time we had a debt ceiling you know, crisis, if you want to put it that way, back in 2011, nobody knew that this memo even existed. Uh, I mean, you know, some people did. Maybe you did, Larry. I won't ask you to reveal your. Uh, <laughs> your, your I didn't you know, know any secrets. Nobody talked but, to me. I was too junior. <laughs> but so this thing existed, and um, and then it was quietly released in 2020. But you know, you and I and everybody else had a lot of other things on our minds in 2020. Right. And so it it hasn't been noticed right. until now when I dug it up in the Fed archives. You know, it's funny. Uh, I was just thinking. Could they get away with that now? It uh, might actually be harder to do now than it was because everything is automated. Oh, right? you don't have to yeah. Bring anything right, in right. to be redeemed. You don't have to say, That's hey, please right. give me my money. They just give you the money. Um, so they would actually have to sort of, you know, like reprogram the computer to, to stop it. Now, look, I don't think... The, the, these days, I, I, one, the Biden administration, I don't think will ask the Fed to do anything like this because they want to put pressure on Congress to pass a, uh, a, you know, to waive the debt ceiling or to raise it. So they don't want to let anybody know there's a backup plan. And you, and it's hard to imagine. I mean, it actually isn't that hard. I can imagine Janet Yellen yeah. Making a phone call to Jerome Powell and be like, hey, look, we're going to be in a sticky situation for a couple of days. Can you guys just hold back? Don't let things mature. And, you know, the Fed doesn't want to cause a, a you know, financial crisis. So, of course, <laughs> they'll say, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll hold on to the, the, the bills, you know, and it won't get it won't get redeemed. The Fed has some extra money. It, that couldn't last forever, obviously. This isn't a long-term solution. Well, the newspapers are all right about it, but I don't think the public would care. I don't really. I don't think the public would understand any of it. In fact, I don't think the public understands any of this stuff in the first place. <laughs> That's right. I think. I think actually, the, the the media is totally wrong when they say if the if the Treasury doesn't pay any bill, right, or any you know if they refuse to make some payment like like a Medicaid reimbursement payment to a hospital, right? If they if they if the treasury can't do that, they say that will cause an international global financial meltdown. No, I don't think that's true at all. I think <laughs> no, I think the bond market is smart enough to know the difference between, you know, not paying off a defense contractor for a couple of days right. and not paying your treasuries. I think the world financial markets would be much more cognizant of a higher and higher Fed funds target rate. That's right. And I think ordinary folks who have mortgages and credit cards would be more cognizant of that also. Anyway, we will leave it there. Uh, John Carney at Breitbart, thank you. I, I love the pictures, you know. 
<laughs> I knew Arthur Burns very, very. I, I knew some of these guys, believe it or not. I knew it. These guys are always smoking in all the pictures yes. and congressional testimony. I, it, it's, I, I love it. I hope everybody subscribes to the Breitbart <laughs> Business Digest because we're really the only place you're going to find the pictures of Volker and Burns. It's fabulous. You know, with pipes and cigars. It's absolutely it's fabulous. Absolutely. Here's Volker. Volker was the president of the New York Fed. This is before he was chairman of the board. Uh, and I was a um, as speechwriter. Believe it or not, it was my last job at the New York Fed after they kicked me out of open market. Copy. I have a signed copy of the Volcker Rule ah. signed by Paul Volcker. So it's up on a frame <laughs> in my office at home. So. All right. John Carney you of Breitbart, thank you, love. Time, appreciate it very, very much. Folks, I'm Cudlow. We'll take a quick break. Other side of the break, we've got a special guest, Kimberly Gilfoyle, old friend of mine. Uh, she'll be here to talk about her new TV gig. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back here, everybody. I'm Larry Cudlow. A special treat, special treat. We have the great Kimberly Guilfoyle on the line. Hi, for, Larry. Hey, Kim. Former Trump advisor and prosecutor and Fox broadcaster and author. And now she's got herself a new show on the video platform Rumble, which starts March 2nd, which is next week. It's going to be called the Kimberly Guilfoyle Show. Tell us about the Kimberly Guilfoyle Show, Kim. I love it. Well, one of the best parts, it's on Rumble. So, yeah, you can follow me at Kimberly Guilfoyle, and you get KG for free, Larry, okay? I mean, uh, <laughs> you're a brilliant uh, economist. I think that's pretty good value, baby. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Okay? So we're and then g- you can diversify your portfolio and get a little bit of at Donald Trump Jr. So we're on there, and it's fantastic. And the best part about it, I was so proud of Don to get a new job and so proud that it's job that he's going to be able to keep he's not going to get fired right you, you think i mean it's going to have to work at it uh, yeah yeah we're never going to be in competition but uncancelable, uncensored and just you know a great marketplace of ideas we've got people on there everybody from like russell brand um to david rubin dan bongino mm. our great friends so it's really fun it's great to upload on there and people have just been incredibly enthusiastic and very responsive and it's really collaborative because we get a lot of viewer comments back and forth i'll be live every uh monday and thursday at four o'clock and then going on locals to do some q a back and forth live during the show and some also maybe special behind the scenes stuff too i think i might do some cooking stuff it was very fun like Cooking with KG, eating with Don, because my my honey never uh, saw a meal that he didn't want to eat and devour, so he doesn't miss many meals. <laughs> All right, well, good for you, Kim. I want to ask you something. I, um, you were down there for this Club Forty Seven event or Club Forty Five event? At- yes, and they renamed it now. Right, their group's at Club Forty Seven. So what? Just tell me what it was because. Apparently, uh, President Trump spoke very well, had a big crowd, had turned people away. And I kind of missed this one. And I wondered if you could catch us up because you, you were there. You and Don Jr. were there, according Don to actually, some reports. Uh, yeah, Don actually went. I was actually – it was a very well-attended event. Um, it was sold out, uh, you know, far in advance. Well, I'm losing you. The whole big thing there when they were there say now we're going to be club – you know, 47, you know, obviously with aspirations for, to be the 47th president of the United uh, States for the oh, 2024 oh, got it. election. But, you know, it's an enthusiastic group. They have a lot of America First uh, people, MAGA speakers come. 
Um, the president really was incredibly well received. He really enjoyed the event. So this has been a group that's been uh, going very strong and continues, you know, from after even the 2020 election and going forward. But it's just like the momentum and enthusiasm you see from the base, you know, for the president, like when he went to East Palestine, really showing up with tremendous leadership for Americans that needed him the most that are suffering. And then you look at the juxtaposition of President Biden spending President's Day in Ukraine, mm. giving away our hard earned tax dollars instead of being here to support the people that needed it most. And then, you know, begrudgingly, reluctantly, uh, you know, Buttigieg showed up, you know, the next morning after President Trump. But it's just unbelievable. And I, I just love this whole movement because you see people like our great friend John Rourke at Blue Line moving, bringing, uh, you know, pallets of water and food and supplies that the president provided to the people who were, you know, really suffering and needed it the most. You know, like we heard the story of the mom who couldn't get water. She didn't have a car, so she would walk such a far distance with her two children to be able to go and get the water. And now somebody gave her a car. She got a second car. She saw another mother that was doing the same thing, walking with the kids. And she gave that car to that mom to be able to take care of her children. That's what makes this country great. We step up for one another. We are there when it matters most. And it's really unfortunate that we have, you know, a president in office. And again, my personal opinion, that really is not putting Americans first. It's too much about exporting America, um, weakening America. We're not seen in the same position by adversaries that would do us harm, um, whether it's Putin, you know, pulling out unilaterally of the START program. I'm not saying he will commit to the, um, you know, deal that we had with him about not having nuclear proliferation. I mean, these should be things of grave concern for Americans and, quite frankly, for the world. But instead, now we've got China spy balloons, you know, North Korea thumbing their nose at us. It, it's a it's very dangerous times. I mean, I'm sure you would agree that these are things that affect the markets. They affect the economy. Um, they affect safety at home and national security. Well, I think the really interesting part of this is uh, how bad Biden and Buttigieg looked and contrast to how good uh, Trump looked in this uh, in this Palestine thing. I mean, those guys, they should have been there from day one before he left for Ukraine or Poland. I mean, they both should have been there day two. You know, this is a major national emergency story uh, and they weren't and they're still not. I mean, Biden no, won't go. Good. Biden won't go. Buttigieg went and everybody booed him out of there. So booed him. He went at 7 a.m. and bailed out of there. It's unbelievable. By the way, I don't care. Like, oh, you, we can blame it on their staffers. I don't think so. You don't even need one staffer to tell you what the right thing mm. to do is, okay? Mm. That falls on Biden. That falls on Buttigieg. They should have shown up. They needed to be there. They have completely abdicated any responsibility or even sense of uh, morality or ethics to say, well, let's do the right thing, right? Most things in life it's pretty clear what the right thing to do is. The right thing was to be there for the people, to understand the situation on the ground, to make sure it doesn't happen again, and to take measures to bring relief to Americans that are suffering instead of leaving them behind. And it's just sad. But, you know, when elections have consequences, people have to think about, is this the guy that they want to remain as president in 2024? And there's one person I know that definitely thinks he should be out of office, and that is President Trump. And that's why he's still fighting. He's never abandoned the people. Mm. It doesn't matter if you're in the White House or not. He's still showing up and making sure that Americans are taken care of. And that's a big deal. You know, people relate to him. And you saw that in the 2016 election, sort of that grassroots 
populist, America first movement, President Trump now showing up, you know, at McDonald's. You and I both know him so well. Um, that's what he likes to eat. You know, that's, <laughs> he's just authentic. And people relate to that. They love it, you know, and that's why he is so popular. And well, that's he, why he's not concerned about anybody else running. The more the merrier, just like in 2016. He looked, uh, I saw him at dinner last Saturday night. He looked great. He looked great. And uh, he has a lot of energy. I want him to talk more about the economy, Kim. I want him to okay. really de- redevelop the um, New York Economics Club speech of September 2016. I, he's got to show people growth and prosperity because Bidenomics and Bidenflation is a dismal failure. And that's ultimately going what's going to be uh, determinant. Anyway, we're out of time. Kim Guilfoyle. Starts on Rumble March 2nd. Everybody at live at dial it up. All right, love. Take All care. Right, thank thank you, you, Kimberly. All Take right, care. All right, folks. I'm Cudlow. We're going to do some stock market work in the next hour. It wasn't such a great week, but I'm still here. We're just kind of, we're kind of muddling through this program, aren't we? We're muddling through. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It is great to be with you. By the way, you can join us during the week. Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. And if you can't make it at 4, you can text your favorite 9-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show and... You can live stream us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com, all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. And we're going to do some stock market work. The worst week of 2023, that's the headline in the Wall Street Journal this morning. See, the Dow is off uh, 1,010 points. The NAS is down 392. The S&P 500 was down 109 points. And I want to say, well, let me bring in our guests. So bring in our guests. This is going to be fun. Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, Chicago's leading restaurateur, and Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial, formerly of Notre Dame. And by the way, fellas, you know we're on 150 stations around the country now. 150, That's 150 oh, stations. I love it. Yeah, we finally yeah. took us a couple years to build back. Um, I want to, you know, I had uh, the great Lee Cooperman on, uh, truly a Hall of Fame investor, and he was on the TV show last night. And Lee was the most bearish uh, I've ever heard him, and I've known him. I don't know, 40 years. But his point, uh, I mean, his point was that inflation will be around for a while. The economy is going to be low for a while. Our fiscal problems, deficits and debt and spending is going to be around for a while. So he basically, you know, he was, he was really quite pessimistic. And... Um, he didn't really pull any punches about that. So, Jim Urio, what do you th- what do you think here? You got some shocking news on inflation. The Fed's going to be jacking up their target rate some more. What's happening out there? Where do we go from here? What do you make of it? Well, you know, you and I 
spoke a little over a week ago, and I had turned somewhat bearish because of the inflation data. So when you look at what's happening now, it's one of three possibilities. That the, perhaps inflation is coming down, but our tools of measuring it are backward-looking or antiquated. I don't think that's the case anymore. I do think there's a modest um, pickup in inflation. Um, but inflation is not coming down because the rate hikes perhaps haven't filtered in yet. That's another possibility. Or we have to consider the possibility that inflation has little to do with the demand side and is still largely affected by supply side issues and that the dampening demand is not helping at all. Now, if our government was interested in fighting inflation, they'd push for sensible deregulation. If they were bent on increasing inflation, they'd overregulate, same time increase spending in a futile attempt to offset the toxicity of that, the regulatory initiatives, which is exactly what they're doing. Mm. So to Leon Koopman's point, that to me is what's the most depressing thing. When you look at guys like us who are a little bit logical say, well, this is what you should be doing, and then they do the exact opposite, then I have a difficult time believing that we're going to write the ship anytime soon. I, I don't think it's like going to be a huge move low in stocks because I don't think the market positioning and the lack of risk um, – respect is there like it has been in some other times. So I do think the stock market goes lower, but I don't think we collapse. Yeah, I mean, look, he did say uh, on the S&P 500, he figured we were heading towards 3,400. It, it closed yesterday at 3,970. So he wasn't, I mean, it wasn't like catastrophic. Yeah, that's not the end of the world, right? Uh, yeah. But he did say 3,400, and he kind of talked about a range of thirty four to forty four hundred, but he didn't see any hope. Uh, I think he said five percent probability of getting to forty four hundred. So yeah, I like that, and that doesn't mean the end of the world too. Like it's not yeah. like everybody's going to get wiped out. I think we could go sideways because of poor, you know, poor leadership at this point in time. But you're right. I mean, Jeff. I mean, it's like they're doing the opposite of what needs to be done. There's they want to spend more, not less. They want to tax more, not less, and they want to regulate more, not less. And they're not going to give any breaks to uh, the uh, oil and gas industry, which is what they should be doing. We should be producing 14 or 15 million barrels a day. We're still stuck at 12 million barrels a day. Uh, so we're financing Vladimir Putin's war. So, you know, the Washington is not helping. Uh, but I think, um, I mean, what I want to talk about, I mean, I think the Fed is going to have to go higher. My hunch is they're going to have to get to 6%. I disagree. I'm going to push back just a little bit, Larry. And you know, the folks in Washington, they've been a stalemate, no doubt about that. But I'll leave the folks in Washington in Washington. But when we talk about the Fed, I think it's remarkable and it's fascinating how much credit we are giving the Federal Reserve. They have been historically wrong for decades. They were just wrong last year when they talked about inflation being transitory. So I think the pendulum swings too far with the Fed. I don't think the terminal rate is going to get anywhere near 6% because I think you will see, and you know this, Larry, inflation, when we do see these month-to-month -month reports, it's a bit spastic for us to react to every single reading. I think you can't understand inflation in a linear line. I think it's going to be up and down. And right now, Yes, we did see a little bit higher than expected PCE. That's the personal consumption expenditure. That's the preferred metric that the Fed likes. But nonetheless, we saw a lot of strength in the consumer. What's fascinating, and I hate to bring up the University of Michigan because you know I dislike the University of Michigan, but the <laughs> University of Michigan sentiment actually improved. It was, it was actually funny. Higher in January. <laughs> so the consumer is so strong. So come on, guys. You know, actually, yeah. though, that uh, – you had a high, re you had a strong retail sales number. Uh, granted, that's right. But 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 if you um, 
if you look at the year-to-year change, it actually was all inflation. It really is it's just almost identical to the uh, CPI, about 6.5% year-to-year. So I, I agree with you with the month-to-month stuff. But the reality is retail sales uh, practically zero in real terms. And I want to add to that um, the year-to-year change of industrial production and manufacturing uh, zero, basically zero, and housing starts continue to plunge. I mean, it's hard to make much of a positive case. Uh, I know Joe Biden would like to make that, but I don't think anybody's buying it. And the other thing is, uh, take a look at your numbers on wages and inflation. Wages are still coming in below the consumer price index. It's not good. Real wages continue to fall. So I think what you got here is a stagnant economy with very sticky inflation. I think that's well, Larry, the problem. I, I, want, I want Jimmy to weigh in a second, but what's really interesting, we see all this emotion, right? We probably had too much of gains in the stock market in January, and now we're probably a little oversold. But when you see this much emotion, I think Leon Cooperman is right. You have to rely upon the technicals. And 39.40 is the 200-day moving average. We kissed it on Friday. So I think we are going to continue to see higher lows, but we're in a range here. I think you have to embrace the volatility, not run from it. Jimmy, get in here. So I, you, Larry forgot to mention the Philly Fed index last week that came out absolutely indicating that a recession is coming. Yeah. The yield curve still says, to your point, Jeff, yeah. that the Fed is go, is moving too far in one direction. Whatever the reason is, the ones I you know came up with at the beginning, probably because uh, they don't know how to measure inflation. Did as well, you say I was right? Because, yeah, I said you were right. And you were funny about the University of Michigan thing. So it's two to, <laughs> two to nothing now, Kilberg, which I rarely like to give you any, any kudos there. But, uh, yeah, I do think – I think there's a huge bifurcation within the economy too. I think there was such a wealth transfer over the last three years that the pe- people with money are still spending it. And, you know, restaurant numbers are still pretty good, particularly in nice areas and upper-end places. But people without money – you saw that the statistic on uh, car loans. Uh, delinquencies, credit card delinquencies, and then you look at the fact that credit card debt has hit almost one trillion an all-time high at the same and time. Jimmy, Jimmy that's the metric collapse. that's really confusing. That's the metric that's confusing the Fed. Inflation went higher in January, but the consumer is still strong. They don't know what yeah. to do. I think the consumer is borrowing and spending. I think it's sort of the YOLO thing. After the rug was pulled on them for three straight years and they were locked up, I think people are willing to spend and and uh, hope you know that's a problem for tomorrow, Jim. I think the federal government is bankrupt and just won't admit it. <laughs> Those monetary theory you know, people. Just, you know what? They had their you know, day. They had their day in court. Uh, the, moneta- the modern monetary theory section of the Notre Dame Economics <laughs> Department had its day in court, and it flunked. It completely flunked. Uh, well, they, and that, they don't agree with that. They and, still keep saying that, no, we just didn't do it right. Know, we're the most, the most we, asinine thing I've ever seen. We didn't do enough of it. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. really. And then the the political wisdom in Washington is let's not touch Social Security and Medicare. Let's, yeah. let's just watch it go down. <laughs> Excuse me, a headache. <laughs> I mean, really, it's uh, by the by, as a sidebar, uh, Jeff Kilberg, the the cons- the um, cost of living adjustment, which was significant because the CPI was so high in 2022. That's right. That is a temporary stimulus. 
which is going to go away, but it's a temporary stimulus. It's a one, one shot. That could uh, be one explanation for the strong retail sales number in um, January. Just saying. Well, I, no, you bring up a great point. I think it's cautious optimism, which is what I have. And look at look at Warren Buffett. He just came out. He has more cash than ever, $130 billion to his balance sheet, buying treasury. So he's waiting and being poised for, for dry powder. But nonetheless, this isn't as bad. And the fact that we have such a bipolar view on the market, that means this market is very coiled. I believe this is going to break to the upside, not to the downside, because we've already retested that. You don't need a capitulation in stocks. I think we actually had a capitulation in interest rates back in October. Jim Urio, can can you have it like a negative coil, which is what I think Kilberg's trying to say? It's coiled, but I think it's going to coil down. No, I think it's coiled in either – it can coil in either direction. And I don't think – see, the problem I have – with the big, huge, like, uh, vacuous move down is because I think, you know, the VIX has been relatively high, you know, the, the um, volatility. It just seems like people aren't all on one side of the boat. And the explosion of options trading over the last few years, I think it's less likely that everybody crowds on and we get we collapse. I think 3,800 is my level. 3,400 that Leon Cooperman said is reasonable to me. But I've begun selling some 3,800 puts. That's where I want to start buying some things. And, uh, you know, again, I think if we have, as we start to come to an election, we believe that the conversation is being pulled much more like it was in 1980, that deregulation is going to replace overregulation, mm. and that uh, this, you know, global, I'm not a globalization guy, but to be able to, to repair relationships that help repair supply chains. And some big nine economists are talking about just this big move from China to India. Well, that's a decades long thing. I don't want to, I don't want to wait a decade for prosperity. We got to get things going a little quicker. By the way, speaking of globalization, we got to take a break, but globalization, so the former CEO of MasterCard is going to run the World Bank. What does that mean? Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Does that oh, mean great. We're, all, we're all going into debt? <laughs> that's what it seems I mean, like to me. I mean, is, aren't they in the business of debt? <laughs> so he's going to run the world. I got to get out of here. Uh, Jim, hold on, fellas. We're going to come back. Jim Urio, TJM Institutional Services, Jeff Kilberg, KKM Financial. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We are talking stocks. We've got Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, and Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial. Jim Urio, what's a, what's your bond thinking these days? So I still think rates are going higher still, probably for the remainder of the year. Um, I still think the, the the curve stays inverted. I could see the 10-year trading up, you know, four and a quarter uh, within the next couple quarters before the realization comes that rates are going to have to go back down again. So, uh, yeah, I still am a bear. So 393. Jeff Kilberg, uh, you have a 6% Fed funds rate. I think the 10 years got to go to about four and a half, maybe five, because you got to have real rates. You can't live with negative real rates. That's modern monetary theory, which flunked. Can't do it. Not only that, Uncle Sam is selling lots of bonds. In fact, Uncle Sam will be selling more or less $20 trillion of bonds in the next 10 years, according to the Congressional Budget Office, and the Federal Reserve is not buying bonds. In fact, the Fed is selling bonds, Mr. Kilberg. So that doesn't make you know me happy about the bond outlook. No, it doesn't make anyone happy. But you know what Uncle Sam is also doing? 
paying a whole heck of a lot more in interest on his balance sheet. So I do not see the 10-year spending much time above 4%. I think by design, they have let the curve be inverted. So you're seeing the six-month right now at 5.11%. That's remarkable. But I do think that you're going to see this continue to trade in a range. And I think the bond market is providing leadership. So we saw the 10-year just at 340 two weeks ago. It shoots up 50 basis points, nearly 60 basis points. And what happens? You see technology profit-taking. So I think you continue to have to look at the bond market I think the Fed's going to flinch. I think they're going to blink. I think they're going to do something because the last thing Fed Chairman Paul really wants to do is push us into recession. And I think we're really towing the line right now. So I think they have to sit on their hands. I know the Fed fund is pricing two more 25 basis points. That's kind of a given uh, rate hikes. But nonetheless, I think after this next one, I think the language may ease if indeed inflation abates like I see it, like I envision inflation really abating. Yeah, well. It's a triumph of hope over experience. Every buyer needs a seller. That's the way Every I look at buyer. That's pretty much the way I look at that one. Um, well, well, Yuri, Yuri was citing 1980. I know you guys were both shaving in 1980, but I was in diapers in 1980. So, yes, I don't have some of that experience that you guys envisioned and endured in the 80s. By the way, speaking of what the Fed wants, you know, they have a position open, vice chair. And one of the – it didn't get enough press, although I covered it last night um, – the uh, press secretary, what's it, Karine Jean-Pierre, was asked about that. And she said, well, we're going to look at this position on the basis of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Not merit, mind you, not experience, but diversity, equity, inclusion. This is for vice chair of the Fed, which is, you know, a relatively important position. It's not the be-all, end-all, but it's kind of a important. It's got a big title. Can you imagine that? So Austin Goolsby in Chicago, who is now the president of Chicago Fed, was touted for that job, gentlemen. I mean, I know Austin. You may know him, too. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Austin's, yeah, a li- Austin's a lib, but he's a moderate lib, uh, very moderate lib, taught at Chicago Business School for many years, uh, worked for Obama, CEA. Uh, he can't make it. He's got skin is the wrong color. His pronoun is wrong. Everything How about him is wrong. Isn't it, this just the saddest state of affairs when we yeah. we get away from meritocracy? Like, who cares right. what color or what uh, sexual orientation someone is if they know what they're doing? And they, I don't. This this is the reason. This is the thing that keep me up at night. I don't. I don't understand this for one second. I mean, she never even bothered to even hint that it would be done on the basis of merit experience for example diversity you know, equity they, and inclusion i mean she just went came right out and said it It was amazing you know, how highly how highly politicized they are they almost like to pick someone who's like tragically unqualified for a spot put them yeah. in there just to make their political opponents crazy mm. and then they look at us and say see these guys are uninjured and they're crazy and i can again this is not some conspiracy theory i can give about 10 examples of that so could you guys i'm sure that's why miss kilberg should be more cautious i think much more, much more cautious in my, in my stock market out view. Fair enough, fair enough. But bonds, I think I think there's volatility, political volatility provides too. opportunity, Larry, and bonds and bonds. But I think when you have this wide of dispersion, it, like I said, I feel it's very coiled, and I just see the market moving to the upside because that is the path of most pain. Look at the under the people. Can I add one thing? That I think is really important that we haven't mentioned at all. The BOJ keeps you know, injecting cash, and that believes in, like, you want to talk about who's going to buy the bonds. Mm, great point. Perhaps if, 
if they, yeah, if they, and they keep throwing money into the system, perhaps that bleeds over to the bonds and goes against my you know bearish thesis on it. But that could be one of the reasons the stocks or bonds rally. I just want to make sure we said that because I think it's an important thing. Well, they got a new guy. They're putting a new guy into the BOJ. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. But you understand that's all controlled by the government. It's not an independent central bank. It's controlled by the Ministry of Finance, which is run by a bunch of left-wing Keynesians. It's a closed exactly. economy. I mean, really, it's a disappointing. Well, how, how independent is our central bank, Larry? How independent really is Look, Compared to Japan, very independent. Fair enough. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, Very independent. I mean, uh, it's pretty independent. That That doesn't mean they're not stupid. It just means they're independent. There's a difference. <laughs> okay. Good point. Stupid, stupid is different than independent. You can be stupidly independent. Anyway, we have Jim Urio and Jeff Kelberg. I'm Cudlow. Have been stupidly independent. Next, (laughs) money and politics. Up next with John Fund and Steve Moore. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We're going to talk money and politics. We got Steve Moore, Vice President of Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and WABC radio host. The name of the show is More Money. On some of these stations, it's going to appear. Right after this show. I don't know. Did we find John Fund or we're still looking for John Fund uh, also of um, Committee to Unleash Prosperity? Steve Moore, did you see the piece um, in the Washington Post by Jeff Stein, uh, I guess a couple of weeks ago, Senator Bernie Sanders pitched the president directly on his plan to increase seniors' benefits. But here's what he wants to do. He wants to raise taxes— uh, payroll taxes mm-hmm. on the top earners, and then he wants to give everybody $2,400 more. He admits that Social Security is going bankrupt, but that's his plan. Uh, and it also goes on to say, by the way, that Biden aides uh, have, in fact, been looking at raising payroll taxes on the rich to finance Social Security. Now, the Republicans don't want to talk about Social Security and Medicare at all. So what do you make of all this? Well, Larry, first of all, people should know that they already I believe they already did lift the cap for the Medicare portion of the payroll tax. You may know that whether I'm right about that. But I think as part of previous negotiations, um, we've already raised the cap on that two point nine percent tax. And so now what they want to do is both get rid of the cap on the payroll tax, but also raise the rate on higher income Mm -hmm. people. And that's just a marginal tax increase yeah. on people who continue to work. And what it will do is is to deter investment and work effort. And we should be encouraging work, not discouraging it. And so I think it's a terrible idea. Um, and I've always believed, by the way, you know, I, I, I'm a kind of radical on this. I think people should be able to take 10% of their paycheck and put it in a 401k plan and not have to put it in Social Security. We've done that 35 years ago. Every person retiring now would be a millionaire. By the way, you could do that. Um, you could have a menu of options. Yeah. You could put it in the stock market index. You could also put it in a bond market index. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm, you do. You would do significantly better. You know, you would you would be getting benefits 
from from your pension, uh, which Social Security is sort of a pension, that would be twice as large as you get right now from Social Security. So we should do this. We, you know, yeah. back when the when the Dow Jones is a thousand, you know, we started talking about this. Now it's at thirty four thousand. Mm. So it's a shame we haven't done it. it. It's a it's a really important thing to do. But what is this with everything the left wants to do right now is redistribution. Mm-hmm. It's not growth. You know, you scolded me the other day on your on your TV show saying I'm not talking enough about growth. So, yeah, let's talk about growth. Yeah. You're not going to get more growth by raising taxes on people. G-R-O-W-T-H. Growth. <laughs> okay. It's the missing link in economic policy. I, I want to come back to the growth thing in a minute, but I got one more for you. Um okay. Biden administration's regulations would ban 96% of gas stoves. Now, this is from Senator Steve Daines of Montana, but it's very interesting because they just told it, didn't we yeah. had this flap a couple weeks ago and the Bidens denied it up and down. But as it turns out, they are cooking up regulations to ban yeah. gas stoves. So they're lying yeah. to us. That, and I think that was through the um, energy, either the energy department or the EPA wants to. So they have so many, so many different agencies regulating these yeah. things that I forget which one it is. So one of the agencies said, no, we wouldn't we weren't going to regulate that. But but another one did. And they, by the way, I have to say this goes back to this. You know, George W. Bush is was a very good president in a lot of ways, but. He passed a terrible energy bill mm. in his last uh, year in office, mm-hmm. which started regulating all these utility, you know, all these uh, your 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 washer and dryer, your dishwasher, your toilet, all this stuff. And it was all to save energy. And 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 the gas stove, by the way, is something you want to get and more. My wife angry. <laughs> you tell her that you're going to take away your gas stove yeah. because she doesn't like the electric stove. You know, food tastes better when it's cooked on the on the gas stove. It's and this idea that it causes in in or pollution is an absolutely ridiculous concept. So, by the way, uh, you're right. It's the Energy Department. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Granholm yeah. called the idea of a gas stove ban ridiculous, but then her agency pushed forward with <laughs> sweeping restrictions on the appliance. Yes. So that's yeah. right. It's coming out of the Energy Department. Uh, the rumor is that John Fund is around. Uh, that may be National Review, National Affairs reporter, and um, uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and his book, Our Broken Elections, How the Left Changed the Way You Vote. John, you know, Bernie Sanders runs this White House, and he's telling Biden to uh, raise payroll taxes on the rich and then give everybody $2,400 higher Social Security check. That's the way they want to solve Social Security. You have a thought on that, John? You have any inside reporting on that? <laughs> it's always the left's approach, because rather than deal with the fiscal realities of either Social Security or Medicare, it's like Willie Sutton with banks. That's where the money is. It's with the taxpayers. And that's what they're going to go after. Of course, the problem is that Biden, even with his expansive view of executive authority, can't just do that with a snap of his fingers. No. But I believe he will make that a major part of his campaign platform. He will say the Republicans have to cut Social Security. There's no other way around it. But I will save you because I will just have the, quote, rich, unquote, pay for it. Yeah, I th- I like that. I mean, I don't like it, but I think you're correct 
Uh, that's exactly where they're going to go. This is a Jeff Stein story in the Washington Post. Jeff Stein, by the way, not a bad reporter. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. So, you know, we probably all dealt with them. But the thing is, it fits the Democratic model of taxing rich people. So it's absolutely perfect. Absolutely. Now, uh, John. Way, I- it totally, it, it totally um, destroy, undermines the whole idea of what Social Security was supposed to be when it was set up by FDR. It was never meant to be an income redistribution program. Right. It was an insurance program. It was a, a pension program. And so the idea that you're going to pay for the pension program by soaking the rich, get the whole idea was people contributed to their own retirement. Now we're moving. I think that will blow up Social Security. Well, look, uh, you. I think you hit the nail on the head. It's uh, discouraging work. It'll damage the economy. It'll probably make the Social Security deficit worse. That's what happens. But I don't believe it will happen, Larry. You yeah. don't think? But he'll. But do you think? He, but he'll campaign on it. Well, look, yeah, but you know, I, I have to tell you, I know, I've read, I've been in a lot of focus groups in which either the near retirees or the retirees are there, and if you tell them that, yes, of course, you know their benefits will be preserved, but it'll come at the cost of their children and grandchildren having a crushing level of debt. They will never be able to afford their own home. They will barely be able to afford buying a car. That it's basically saddling future generations, including the the grandchildren they want to hold and look in the eye with basically poverty, effectively. So you think- I think- I think that does make a difference with a lot of people who just don't have short-term thinking. They, they think a little longer range. So um, you, you think that uh, other people besides Steve Moore obsess about debt? <laughs> well, they don't obsess about debt. But, they, but remember, Larry, I mean, the most important number in politics right now is this. Only 27% of Americans believe their children or their grandchildren will have a more prosperous future than they did. Well, that's and, I, I agree with that. Now, I want to talk about that in a minute. All right. Can I make it, one other point about this? Social Security it's this just, I just want to say that I love yeah. debt. That's all. I just want yeah, to say that. So I want to – because we have a new study that your, uh, your friend from the White House, Casey Mulligan, has done. Casey's one of the top labor economists yes. in the country. Yes. And he's, his data shows, you know who has put a big, big hole in Social Security? Joe Biden has. Yes. You know how? Because he's reduced labor force participation. Less money is coming in. Oh. Uh, and the economy is not performed as it should have and would have under the Trump policies. And this should be the Republican line. Joe Biden, you're the one who's punching this big hole in Social Security because we don't have enough people working. You're paying people not to work. Uh, and the economy stinks. All of these things are making the Social Security whole much worse. Well, it's, that's good. I like that. Casey's a smart guy. So do you know what? In in Joe Biden's first year in office, first full year in office, do you know what real GDP grew at? Either of you. Two. After Super. the revisions. Zero, what was it? 0.9. That's pathetic. Because Isn't that something? Out of, Zero. Look, this right. is important, Larry, because – we were growing, but in the last six months that Biden, I mean, that uh, Trump was president, yes. the economy grew by 11 percent over those six months. So to go from 11 percent growth and, and we just had the vaccine announced that practically when Biden was coming to office, we should have been booming in 2021. And instead, the economy hit the brakes. Trump gave him a six and a half percent real GDP first quarter, six and a half. Yep. All right. Yep. And. His uh, last 12-month CPI was 1.4. 
So so Biden's first full year in office, 0.9, call that no growth, and uh, 6.5% inflation rate. Are you sure about that number, Larry? I'm looking at fourth over fourth. They they just just, uh, made the revisions. I mean, that's it. Dismal performance. I I would never lie to you. And as I say, I love debt. So uh, (laughs) what we need is more debt. So uh, let's take a quick break. I want to come back and talk about or ask you guys – where are the Republican presidential candidates talking about a new vision of economic growth and prosperity? I'm looking for it. And I'm not going to say Nikki Haley wants to have age and mental testing. OK, the smartest guy I know with the most energy is 82 years old. And that's Art Laffer. Art Laffer should meet Nikki Haley. Anyway, we have John Fund and we have Steve Moore I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. Talk Radio 77 WABC. To the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking money and politics with John Fund, National Review's National Affairs reporter and uh, Unleash, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, John's latest book, Our Broken Elections, How the Left Changed the Way You Vote. And uh, Steve Moore, Vice President of Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, WABC radio host, More Money, right after this show, and his book, Godzilla. Uh Gentlemen, I just want to toss this out. You have um, bad inflation numbers popping up in January. Rates are going to go higher. You have virtually no growth. Bidenomics is a failure. Bidenflation is a disease. Real wages continue to sink. But I'm not hearing anything from the Republican candidates. Now, I I don't just mean the official ones. I mean the whole lot of them uh, that are going to run or are likely to run. I'm not hearing any message of growth like we should be trying to grow the economy at 4%. I don't hear discussions of tax cuts. I don't hear deregulation. I don't even hear fossil fuels anymore. Uh, I don't hear a strong dollar. I don't hear stewardship of growth and prosperity. I mean, what is up with this? What are they waiting for? Biden has given them an unbelievable opportunity, and they are not taking it. Now, you can tell me it's early, but I'm going to say it's going to take a while for things to sink in. But they're just not doing it. They're not doing any of it. Larry, like them or not, the political consultants basically have the following message to any candidate who hasn't announced. Donald Trump is out on his own. Uh, he's making his own news. You know, he went to East Palestine, got some good reviews there. He's the he's the only candidate out there besides Nikki Haley. Let him run. And when you announce, and for DeSantis, it'll probably be May after the Florida legislature adjourns. Uh, Pompeo will probably be the same month. There'll be others. That's when you have to make your splash. And your splash is new news. What is new? And I know I know that they all have an economic program. I know they all have a clutch of economic advisors that are preparing stuff. And I hate to say this because, yeah, I mean, I'd like to hear it now, too. But they're on their own timetable, and they're not going to announce until they're ready, and they're not going to announce their new economic plan until they announce. Well, I, you know, Steve Moore, I just (laughs) – to me, uh, I don't buy it. I mean, Nikki Haley – I don't want to pick on Nikki. She's a very smart woman. I know her, blah, blah, blah. But she's making an issue of age, you know, mental capacities and things like that. That's not the issue. 
And even our former boss, my former boss, now he did make a great splash at uh, Palestine. All right, I give him a lot of credit for that. Very good. But he needs to get back to his basic message, which is to make the Trump tax cuts permanent, to uh, deregulate business, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It would be nice if he added some spending restraint, which he didn't really have in his uh, term. But the point is, I, I don't think that I don't think the consultants are right. I think it takes a while for things to sink in. Biden's getting a free pass because these other people are talking about issues that people don't care about. The issues that people care about, they are, their wages are sinking. People are working two and three jobs, and they're not getting paid for it. The inflation's not going. I mean, hell, in the last inflation report, uh, groceries were up 11 percent year on year. Well, nobody's yeah. talking about that, and they need to talk about that. And they need to. Laffer is so right on it. There has to be a growth and prosperity vision, right? Four percent growth would make a big difference in this calculus. Well, I, you know, obviously I agree with that, and uh, I think that um, you know the one guy who does have a growth message, uh, a strong growth message, is Trump, because Trump can say, right. "Look what I did for the economy. <laughs> How do you like it now compared to?" And, and I look, I, I'm, I'm. Uh, not picking favorites this time. Uh, right. You know, I want to see how they all perform on the big stage. But I think Trump does have a compelling case to say, look, look at what I did, how I rebuilt the American economy. He likes to say he rebuilt it twice. Then there's something to that. He rebuilt it from the shambles that he inherited from Obama. And then we were coming out of COVID, you know, in a very, very strong way. Um, I don't look there. A lot of Republicans want to fight the culture wars right now. Larry. And, you know, I like I'm a cultural conservative, too. I think what's happening in our culture and our schools and so on is is rancid. But you have to combine that with a pro-economic growth strategy. I'd like the theme. How about this one, Larry? The middle class squeeze, mm. because they're the people who are getting screwed right now. Well, they are. Look, uh, you know, I agree with what you're saying. I I, sp- I had dinner with Trump Saturday night last night. And I said to him, we talked about a lot of different things, but I said, you got to have a growth and prosperity message. You've got to. Kellyanne and I were on the show last night talking about this. Go back uh, to the New York Economics Club speech in September 2016, which, by the way, was a month earlier was the Detroit Economics Club. We all put a lot of work into that. It was a fabulous message, a fabulous message. You know, he needs to update that. And by the way, I want to hear uh, DeSantis may have economic advisors, but he's not pulling his punches on cultural issues or immigration when it comes to national issues. He just hasn't said anything about the economy or the budget. I mean, you know, spending is a problem and I'm I'm not hearing it. Uh, Mike Pence occasionally talks about it, but he needs to Pompeo needs to do it. They all need to do it, John. The consultants don't know Bupkis. I don't. I don't. I'm not interested in Republican consultants. But Larry, I'm interested in and in what these candidates have to say. Well, Larry, you look at it from a national perspective. I do. Remember, I do. This is a things, national problem. Things, this is well, a national things, problem, John. Larry, Larry, one of the things that DeSantis is going to be running on is what he did for the economy of Florida. Did you listen to or read his full state of the state speech? It was all there. It just had Florida in front of it. 
Well, look, monetary policy, I grant you that. But that speech in Florida was all about the Florida economy and how to make it grow and the jobs situation, which, of course, is fabulous in Florida. Well, but he starts off with a lot of advantage. By the way, not in the state of the state message. Read the state of the state. message, John, Larry. All right, hang on a second, John. I'm going to tell you something. He raised the corporate tax in Florida. It's up to five and a half percent. Shouldn't he have done balanced that. it out with tax cuts in other areas. I don't care. You don't raise taxes on corporations. You may be for him, John, but I want you to be objective on this show. He raised the (laughs) corporate tax. That's not good. Now, I want to know here. Let me give you an example. He's not running for president. Scott Hodge, head of the Tax Foundation or emeritus head, whatever. He's on the show last night for three or four minutes talking about a 20 percent modified flat tax with 100 percent expensing. Now, how hard is that, Steve Moore? I mean, that's the kind of thing I want to hear from the candidates. I also want to hear them talking about permitting and reopening the spigots for oil and gas. They're not doing that. We're financing Vladimir Putin's war. That's what we're doing. He's selling 10 million barrels a day, and we're financing it. If we, if we were at 14 or 15 million barrels a day, the price of oil would be $50. It would be a whole different boy. I'm just saying simple stuff. Regulations business. All right. Even even gas burning stoves. I, you got to The GOP can't make the same mistake they made during the midterm elections. They've got to have a counter message, a prosperity message. They've got to say we are the stewards of prosperity. This used to be GOP bread and butter, Steve. Where is it? <laughs> well, certainly I, I love that idea, by the way, of the 20 percent. Yes. Yes. The old. Forbes idea, and he ran for president on that in 1996, and the time has come for a simple, uh, you know, we wouldn't have to, by the way, another argument for that is we wouldn't have to hire 87,000 new IRS agents right. if we have a simple right. flat tax. That is correct. Uh, so I think people want a simplified and pro-growth tax form. I disagree with you on one thing. I do think the Republicans are talking a lot about the energy uh, calamity that has been created yeah, by, th- uh, you know, I mean, they they are talking about it pretty nonstop. And I've been using your line because I think it's absolutely true that, look, first of all, if Trump had been president, we wouldn't be facing the situation right. in Ukraine. But the other point is that you really want to put the hurt to Ukraine, pump more oil and gas here in America. Yes, yes, absolutely. That would have been the, the best single weapon. All right, we'll leave it there. John Fund and Steve Moore. Steve Moore Show, more money is coming up on a lot of these same stations, so please listen to it. I'm Larry Kudlow, and um, I'll be back next weekend. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.